listening to Building the Village, a show that focuses on how different villagers are making an impact in the villages where they serve. Each episode features insights and practical strategies that you can use to motivate teams, mentor individuals, and maximize time and talent. I'm your host, Dr. Brandon W. Jones, founder and speaker at B. Jones Speaks, LLC. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome, everybody, to Building the Village, episode number six. Yeah, it's number six. I'm your host, as always, Dr. Brandon W. Jones. Super excited to have my friend, Emmanuel George, with us today. Manny, how you doing today, brother? Man, doing great, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Listen, before we dive into the deep philosophical questions of the hour, I want to give you a chance to tell the folks a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you from, and how did you get to where you are today? Man, awesome. Thank you. Well, uh, my name is Emmanuel George. Also, uh, people call me Dr. EG3. I'm a pharmacist by training. Went to uh, Xavier University of Louisiana, HBCU, amazing, amazing college down there. As you guys know, in New Orleans, is, is rich in culture, and that's where I'm from. I uh, grew up through that culture. Uh, people from New Orleans know what I'm talking about. People from Louisiana know that, you know, there's New Orleans, but then there's obviously the rest of the state. That's no shade, just difference, right? Yes, sir. But uh, again, born and raised down there in New Orleans, came up through a uh, single mom household, um, had individuals around me, but I was raised by like a family of women, you know, to be honest with you, you know, um, had a couple of uncles here and there who were very impressionable. But, you know, again, the, the whole family was pretty much women who supported me on my journey as uh, being a young man through high school, through college. Life is strange, man, because, you know, through that, I uh, came through the time of Hurricane Katrina uh, mm-hmm. as I was graduating pharmacy school. Uh, very, very crazy time of life, as you could imagine. Relocated to the Houston area, um, was a regional supervisor for a major uh, Fortune 50 uh, company, was a mid-level exec, did that for a little while, and uh, matriculated my way back to um, the academia realm where I teach for a local college of pharmacy where I get an opportunity to just uh, be around just some very amazing, amazing students who are brilliant and are trying to change the future uh, for healthcare in their communities. So that's kind of the quick and dirty version. Uh, yeah. but that's uh, me in a nutshell, man. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that, Dr. EG3. Talk to us about your experience uh, down at Xavier, because I know right now some people are like, you know, HBCUs are now hot. But the folks that graduated from HBCUs are like, we never stopped being hot. So tell us what that was like, man. So, you know, what I'll tell you is this, is that, you know, I had an amazing experience at an HBCU, um, you know, New Orleans um, has traditionally always been like a chocolate city, you mm-hmm. know, so uh, obviously seeing, growing up, being around people that kind of look like me. Now, I, I know your audience can't see me, but, you know, I am, you know, uh, a little <laughs> bit on the lighter side, but this is just how they make us down, down south, right? But uh, what I'll say is this, is that it was just great being around um, highly motivated uh, individuals who are in pursuits of, you know, not just higher education, but just changing communities, you know, just mm-hmm. the whole mission behind not just HBCUs, but Catherine Drexel and um, Norma C. Francis of uh, Xavier was just tremendous of the impact that they had, not only in New Orleans, across the region, but being, you know, the number one a pre-med school of putting African-American students into med school. Mm-hmm. One of the premier pharmacy schools in the region was just amazing. And, you know, obviously we all know the culture that comes with it. But like you said, man, HBCU has always been hot. 
Yes, um, I know it's fashionable today, but you know, I would not trade my experience that I had uh, being with a collective of individuals. Mm. And you know, obviously, I'll tell you, being a commuter student versus being you know someone who was actually in them dorms, mm. uh, St. Joe's and, and uh, the different dorms down there, um, we had a little bit of different of experience. But I'll say I wouldn't change it for the world. I looking back, I wish I was a little more intent on mm. um, experiencing college. And I'll say this, you know, education is very important. Mm -hmm. Uh, Coming from a single mom household, um, my sister went to college, but not really having people around me to guide me through that process. Um, All I knew, I was in school, tuition bill comes, you got to pay that thing. So I was probably working way too much to try to afford those college education Mm. bills without recognizing that stuff like financial aid, Pell Grants and things that get exist. Like I understood that those things existed. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because when you fill out your FAFSA, you get like the menu of the things that are available to you. But just to show you how sometimes when you don't have people to educate you through the process. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first got my FAFSA back, I remember starting about to start Xavier and um, I got a, they basically said, you don't really qualify for this stuff. Your mom has to pay, you know, uh, for parent plus loan. That, you know, it was like $40,000 or something like that. And, you know, at the time it was more than she made in a year. Mm. So I couldn't ask my mom to go ahead and, you know, sacrifice that on my behalf. So basically we had to kind of pretend like I was independent so I can take it all a burden on myself. But again, taking student loans and things like that was a foreign concept to me. So Mm -hmm. I probably spent way too much time working, Mm -hmm. um, you know, working 44 hours a week to try to pay for, uh, I don't know if you guys knew this, but Xavier is a private, private Catholic institution, man. Mm-hmm. So we weren't talking a little bit of money per semester. We was talking about almost 10 grand a semester before books and lab fees and stuff of that nature. So wow. I was trying my darndest to pay for that, but just not having somebody to guide me through that. So I will acknowledge now that I probably didn't have the full college HBCU experience, but the pieces that I were able to experience, the mm-hmm. the neophyte shows that I was able to attend yeah, or the yeah. time on the yard, it, again, it was definitely something that uh, I would not give back. I would even encourage our kids to attend the HBCU. That's what's up, man. And I appreciate you sharing that because, you know, sometimes when we talk about going to college on this show, there's sometimes there's the assumption that like the whole audience knows that like, oh yeah, we all stayed in residence halls. We all did it this way. But the reality is some of us had to work and, you know, navigate these systems on our own. And yet here you are back in higher education. You had the corporate job. You worked for a major, major company as an exec. And then now you're in the classroom doing the very thing that you worked hard to pay for. What's that been like? What's it been like to be in the classroom on the teaching side? Well, what I'll tell you this is that, you know, um, if you would have told me um, 2005, 2006, 2007, 2010, that mm-hmm. I'll be back in academia, I would have told you some things and, <laughs> and you know, the devil is alive, probably would have ended somewhere there as well, oh, right? Um, but when I think back and think of my experience, even as Xavier, I was the guy that everybody always came to for clarity and understanding. Mm-hmm. Hey, I don't understand this piece of organic chemistry. Can you help me with this reaction? Hey, I don't understand this about pharmacology or you know medicinal chemistry. Can you help me with this? So what I recognized was is that I'm not going to sit here and pretend to your audience that I was like you know Rokai or valedictorian or summa cum laude because I wasn't mm-hmm. because I had a different priority. I was trying to pay for Xavier, right? So I'll be very efficient. I was studying and learning for knowledge acquisition, not for test performance. 
So again, if you'd have told me, I would have never thought, but it was always about knowing exactly what I need to know and then have a deep level of understanding because I understood two things. I needed to pass because I'm working all the time, so I had to be very efficient, but I also recognized people would come to me as a resource to help them understand and unlock it and help them understand the concepts. As I move through my career, I look back and I think about I was a trainer, I was an educator, whether I was at one store helping patients to understand their medication therapies, how do their medications work, helping them to fit new therapies within to their life existence, making lifestyle modifications. I was educating them through that. When I think about the different locations that I would move through, I was a trainer and an educator of staff of how to operate, how to do things better. When I became a regional supervisor, I was able to educate an entire region of pharmacists on not only how to do pharmacy and healthcare differently, but guess what? Sometimes training and development is just how can you do this job so that you can get home to your family on time, right? So, you know, I was just out doing my thing and, you know, um, where we currently stay in the North Texas DFW area, um, College of Pharmacy uh, came up and it wasn't here when I got here, Um, Mm. but just pouring back, giving to, because what I saw was coming from New Orleans, matriculating through the Houston area, I was able to witness what an institute of higher education, specifically a college of pharmacy, can do to an area of allowing the talent of individuals to be raised. So when I first got up here to Dallas, North of Fort Worth area, there was no pharmacy school. So once the pharmacy schools decided that they were going to open, I was just pouring back, giving to the profession from the position of power that I now held as that mid-level exec. So I was able to just support the program, provide students uh, training opportunities, provide them you know, opportunities to get scholarship, um, supporting the computer labs uh, that they have here on campus for you know sterile compounding and all the inner workings of pharmacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was privileged with an opportunity where they contacted me and said, hey, I think there's a unique a position that I think you will be very qualified for. And, and Brandon, look, man, if I could be Jones, man, if I could tell you, I was a little intimidated, man. I was a little mm. intimidated because I hadn't gone through the process of academia. Right. I didn't go through that process of getting my master's of education. I didn't go through, you know, that, that additional residency training or things that look good on a curriculum vitae. That mm-hmm. makes you very appealing to academia. But what I did have is I had that residency of hard knocks. Yeah. I had that residency of, you know, live in the business world, right? So um, the position that I was actually offered was director of experiential education is kind of how I made my transition, which my role, believe it or not, and it's amazing how life works out for you, man. But the same thing that I was kind of expected to do for the college Mm-hmm. You know, building relationships, connecting with sites, ensuring that there were training opportunities for students, um, abilities for them to go out there and do their clinical rotations. That is the exact position that I was offered within the college, which was the same that I was doing with that executive uh, position within uh, that big organization. So it was a, a, a nice transition. Mm -hmm. Um, into academia. Um, And since that time, I've now been able to leverage my talents uh, in the classroom, to your point of the skills that I'm really good at, you know, pharmacy law, uh, management and operations, the process of how to be a pharmacist. Again, all of the same stuff I was doing over there for this for-profit company, I'm able to now give back to um, the next generation of healthcare professionals. um, Because again, I was trying to help them on the back end you know, of their education. Now I get to be involved in the front end to hopefully impact them to start their career in a different way that Mm -hmm. I was rectifying behaviors on the other side. Wow. Wow. That's an incredible journey. What's one thing that 
you didn't expect from going to pharmacy school? What's been one thing that you've mm-hmm. done within this profession that you didn't even expect to happen? Mm-hmm. You know, um, market dynamics mm-hmm. are always very interesting in terms of, you know, when you are um, considering education or considering mm-hmm. careers, you oftentimes have like this uh, vision of grandeur of like how much it's going to benefit you or how you could benefit the world. Right. And I think the thing that was the most surprising, I guess, about that education, you know, being a pharmacist, you think about I'm embedded in communities mm-hmm. where I can impact people. Uh, I'm able to interact with patients at sometimes their most vulnerable where I can really help them through, um, you know, a challenging times. So I get to be able to educate them about lifestyle and how their medicines affect them. But the thing that was the most surprising was even today, 2021, people still don't understand what pharmacists do. Mm. And I think about day to day, like even right now, you know, um, that's been a big struggle, even through the whole pandemic and everything like that, of helping patients to understand. How about not even patients? How about people, right? To understand that your pharmacist is much more than um, a real life vending machine to give you output of what your doctor wrote for. Mm. Um, we don't understand the process. And I think sometimes it's because most people don't know that um, I'm a doctor of pharmacy. I have a, a degree, a doctorate degree in pharmacy education. Mm-hmm. You know, So I think people don't recognize the level of education that's accessible to them. Um, and, and I think that was the thing that was the most surprising. And I always joke with my students now is that we're going to train you to be thoroughbreds, but sometimes the world would only allow you to pull a fruit cart but never forget who they are. You're mm. still a thoroughbred, irrespective of how the industry, the marketplace actually utilizes you. It's up to you to remember you're a thoroughbred, but then get out there and run, you know, Man. run your race. Woo. That's a whole word, bro. That is a whole word. And you're going in the direction that I was hoping you would go in. So that's incredible. What do you think are some of the common myths associated with being a pharmacist, because I know that the, you, you know this, you see this all the time on social media, yeah. especially around COVID. And we're definitely going to talk about that. But what are some of the common myths that get associated with your area of expertise? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things is that people don't understand what we do. I think part of it is our fault, if I could be honest. You know, if sure. you think of it, um, there's probably about 27 different lanes that a pharmacist could operate in uh, in terms of once they get that pharma doctor of pharmacy degree. One, people don't recognize that because they don't really understand what we do, our education. But I think the biggest hurdle to that is, is that people only recognize pharmacists to the practice setting that's most accessible to them. And that's usually your corner drugstore, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's a big box retailer or that corner drugstore or that mom and pop. And they sometimes uh, distill us down to that's all that we do is put pills in bottles, right? Wow. Um, uh, they only think that oh, we're only following the doctor's recommendations or telling us what to do. And, you know, there's always, a, if you go to any pharmacy chat anywhere, we usually will get the customer complaint. Why does it take you guys so long to put the pills in the bottle? And, you know, my snarky response is, oh, no, no, putting them in the bottle is not what takes the time. It's saving your life is the one that actually mm-hmm. takes all the time, you yeah. know, interacting with the doctor's offices or, or you know, one, people, one thing that people don't recognize is that, you know, a medical mistakes are a real thing in this country, Mm -hmm. Uh, medical mistakes. And sometimes it's literally one decimal point, 
or sometimes it's a misprint on a prescription that um, because of my education, I can recognize those things. The challenge just becomes is how am I allowed to rectify those mistakes that I catch that may not be according to the timeline that a patient may have in terms of wanting to get their prescriptions filled. So I think that's one of the biggest hurdles. I think if people recognize how much that we contribute to the healthcare process, um, I think there would be a different appreciation of those individuals who are working in those supermarkets or those corner drugstores. Um, one example that I think we might highlight it for your audience is that, I, and I remember this, this happened to me on my journey. I remember being a pharmacy manager down in the Houston area, of Fifth Ward of, of Houston. And mm-hmm. I remember a mom came in with her baby having a fever, you know, wasn't really sure what was going on. It was like 7.30 on a Friday evening. And, you know, she was like, hey, what should I do? I'm very concerned about my, my kiddo. Um, should I take him to the emergency room? And I said, well, do you have primary care physician? I said, look, don't go to the emergency room because they're going to make you wait all night long. But how about you take this? This will help with the fever. This will help with the other symptoms. And you schedule an appointment to go to them, to your physician tomorrow during the day Mm -hmm. where you're able to go to a walk-in appointment. Um, And that one activity, that one activity was able to save that mom a lot of time sitting in the emergency room. Those of you with kids out there, you know, if you go to the emergency room, they're going to make you wait. And while you're waiting, guess what they're going to do? They're going to say, take this for the fever, give them this, and guess what you're going to do? Sit for another six hours. So that one recommendation, save that mom time, energy, you know, spending time in the emergency room, but then also saved her and the healthcare system at large Mm -hmm. dollars because, you know, that same visit that you would have gone to that emergency room would have probably came back to you for $1,500, $1,700, turns into a $100 office visit the next day for the same exact result. Man. But those those examples happen all the time, Brandon, all the time of how a pharmacist is able to interact, provide um, some guidance. Think of it this way, man. You basically, to talk to your doctor, you have to make an appointment. And it's never really when you need it. Mm-hmm. But you can walk into any community pharmacy across this nation. You might have to wait a little bit because they might be answering the phone or providing an immunization or taking care of something. But you can get a question answered right now for no fee. Mm-hmm. And what I'll tell you is I think sometimes, frustratingly, is that we are sometimes taken for granted because of that accessibility. Wow. I will share just from a personal standpoint, I remember it might have been a year, maybe even two years ago, my wife posted something on social media and it was about one of our kids. And I think they had a fever or were sick or something. And everybody and their mama had advice and suggestions. And I remember you hit me up and was like, would you like some advice from somebody who do this for a living? I was like, please. Please. <laughs> and I remember going to Melissa and saying, hey, Manny just sent me a text and said, do these couple of things. And we did exactly what you said. And Melissa was like, that's just good common sense. And I said, yeah. I think he was yeah. checking to make sure we wasn't buying into the foolishness. And I'm yeah. glad we listened because I'm like, we did exactly what you said. And we saved time. We saved money. And we saved ourselves hours of having to take off work and make adjustments in our schedule our kids were back up and running the next day it was just yeah hey you know because my wife is notorious for posting anything that happens with the kids and you're absolutely right about yeah. these emergency rooms especially right now with COVID. you know little brandon had an accident the other day where he had a gash in his hand oh, no. she couldn't even go to the er because they had a six hour wait yeah and he's still bleeding under these gauze and the, it, we went to three urgent cares before we found one close to our home where they were like, 
oh, we can stitch that up. We can do it here. Yeah. And they got all of that done. And so I consider you part of our village. But also, I appreciate the role you play because you make sure that in the midst of all the foolishness and chaos, you give us the information. And, and I see where that comes from now when you told your story about valuing efficiency. You don't have time for the minutia and the foolishness. It's like, hey, here's three things you need to do. There wasn't no, hey, I just want to check and make sure you're good. Nah, Brandon, may I? You asked for permission. I really appreciated that. Oh, no problem, man. No problem. And I think, you know, really a lot of people also, um, you know, my students are are very interesting, you know, because they want to save the world. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, I know you say we're going to talk about COVID, but what I'll tell you is this, is that as a pharmacist, right, as a healthcare professional, as a person who I believe is my, I'm a service to the world as a believer. Right. Mm -hmm. It's my job to share good news and good information. It's not my job to close the deal. It's not my job to force you or make you make a decision. Mm -hmm. My job is to help you with that decision, you know, and, and there's many ways that you may need my help for that decision. Sometimes it's deciphering through um, garbage and misinformation out there. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's a recommendation. Guess what? Sometimes it's just support and me asking you, how can I help you? Yeah. And, I, and I really take that as my role and service just to the world. And obviously, I've been blessed, I believe, as a way to really learn and hone that process as a pharmacist. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I find I, I do that whether it's with my coaching or mentoring. I find I, I do that all the time. So, no, I really appreciate it. And I do remember that instance because I know, mm -hmm. like, social media is a very sensitive place. And, guys, I, I want your audience to know is that. I didn't engage on a chat board. Mm -mm. I wasn't in the comments. I, I made a direct message like, hey, look, if you want something, you know, we could talk about it. Because, you know, obviously um, my grandmother used to say it and I'm going to say it a little nicer than what she said. But it was mm -hmm. like opinions are like something, something. Everybody mm -hmm. got one. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's because in, in a space that we're in now, it's just hard to decipher through the noise that's out there um, and, and recognizing trusted advisors, experts and people who really kind of we, we do this. You know, yeah. this ain't new for me. So. Right. You know, I, I have friends from various industries and I love when, you know, when I put something out there and I get that direct message because they like. Hey, because like, for example, uh, one of my friends, when I, I do a design project, I put it out there. One of my design friends will message me and go, you want the opinion of somebody that do this? I'm like, you know, I do. And yeah. I, about an hour later, I get a phone call. He's like, hey, here's what I think. And boom, that I think that I, I have had the most success on projects or um, health advice or just different things that I've been doing because folks like yourself are willing to just go, look, we're not about to get into the opinion space. And I love what you said about, you know, it not being your job to close the deal. It's my job to help you make the best decision for yourself. And again, threading the needle and connecting the dots in your journey. It makes sense how you got there, man. I appreciate that. Let's talk a little bit about COVID. And the reason why I specifically want to talk about it is just because, you know, in this past week, I'm going to be real, I've lost count of the number of folks that I knew from back home or from college or whatever, our age range, mind you, yeah. that lost their yeah. lives due to COVID because of misinformation. It just being real, it's misinformation. Mm -hmm. And being a black pharmacist, talk about what that experience has been like. Because remember when all this started, mm -hmm. it was like, oh no, it ain't touching black folks. And then all of a sudden, 
it was reaching us and then it started reaching us disproportionately and then yeah. all of a sudden you knew it was coming here come the conspiracy theories and yeah. like i said i'm not here to judge or point fingers about that but the reality is watching people pass because of misinformation and them digging their heels in because of misinformation that's starting to get frustrating because that's also cramming up er rooms too agreed agreed no no um it it's been huh, exhausting you know, um, very similar to how our interaction occurred online where you guys had a challenge, a problem. Um, and then I just hit you, you know, on a direct message or a text message. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I've been approaching the misinformation when I see it out there for the folks and people that I connect with. But I think the thing that's the most frustrating is, you know, feeling the burden of having to dispel that a little bit, you yeah. know, in terms of all that misinformation. Um, I think, you know, if I, if I could just take one step back a little bit, and I think COVID is a, a personification of what I'm about to describe, but I think there's just a, a distrust right now of institutions, you yeah. know, whether yeah. we're talking about higher education, you know, you probably could have a whole show about, you know, people, whether or not we should pursue higher education anymore. Um, mm-hmm. Healthcare has always been a big one, the political scene, um, even churches, right? Like people are just distrustful right now of institutions, but I think it really boils down to a, a distrust of motives. And I think that's one of the largest things that we're having to dispel in terms of COVID, right? Because, you know, um, Brandon, I'll tell you this, man, this is the first time for a lot of people, especially in our generation, these kind of old millennials, Gen Z, um, even, you know, the Gen X, right? Mm-hmm. This is the first global pandemic any of us have ever experienced. Now, when you think of like the data points that you're seeing out there, they talk about the 1918 Spanish flu. You might hear people talk about H1N1 and was that 2007 to 2008. You might hear about the Ebola, but the difference with those is that the, especially the Ebola or the H1N1, which was the, the swine flu, um, the, all of those, the avian flu as well, um, they were short-lived. They were stamped out very quickly, very quickly because it was like, here are the measures, here's what we do, and you take care of it. And, you know, I remember there was a big fervor around Ebola because obviously all that was going on in Liberia. Then they had that one case in Dallas and yep. then it just got took out this national attention. Well, Ebola is different because it's not necessarily airborne. It has to be passed through some type of bodily secretions. But then the horrificness of that particular disease is once a person starts to have that hemorrhagic fever, they're mm-hmm. bleeding out. They usually succumb to that, that disease very quickly. Yeah. Whereas you're talking about COVID, it's airborne it can be spread significantly different. And we're talking, we're not talking about a U.S. problem. We're not talking about a Texas problem. We're talking about a global problem. Mm-hmm. It's the first time we've ever had to deal with this in our lifetime. So of course, when you talk about people who are already maybe bent to a little bit more distrust of the government, and I'll say the African-American community, hey, how about this? People of color have yeah. a lot of reasons to be distrustful of not only institutions, but also healthcare entities um, in the government, right? But right now, this is a problem that we're all dealing with. And I'll tell you this, the thing that's most frustrating is, you know, people will impugn me, my education, my degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, I do this. You know, this is right. what I do. You know, I'm actually kind of one of the individuals who are a speaker out this around this, this region in, in a Dallas area. It, it's disheartening to hear where I, whether I go have a town hall with church community members and, you know, we're talking through the same exact talking points and individuals are, again, Tuskegee and all of these, again, history. Right. Um, but it should tell your audience should be very concerned when you're talking about um, when you look at over 95% of all physicians mm-hmm. in America have taken the vaccine. When you look at 
all uh, members of Congress have taken the vaccine. All 50 governors have taken the vaccine, right? All living presidents have taken the vaccine. Um, what we're seeing, what the data is telling us, Brandon, is that, yes, there is disparities around, among vaccination rates when you talk about race and ethnicity. Mm-hmm. But what's really the bigger demarcation is education. Mm. Individuals with higher education, high school or higher, they're much more likely to be vaccinated. And it kind of goes backwards from that. You know, college college degrees are higher. You know, you're talking in the 90th percentile of vaccination rates and it just kind of goes backwards from them. And obviously these aren't absolute numbers. But, you know, again, that's kind of what the data is starting to suggest to us. And it's just been very frustrating to be to be honest with you, being a healthcare professional now for who I don't think I've ever said this number out loud. 16 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 16 years. Yeah, you know. It's 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 disheartening because again I'm trying to sit here and be a service to my my communities the people that I know and love and you know we're getting caught up in these conspiracy theories from that's that are being passed down because if you think of it we have some individuals you know when you're talking millennials Gen Z they know nothing of the past atrocities of the past you know mm-hmm. I would understand my parents right and you know maybe your parents True. they are literally one or two generations away. They lived through segregation. They probably lived in parts of Jim Crow, right? So they're like a lot more connected. When we think of it, it's history, right? It's history. We don't have the same connection. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, like I said, it's just to think that people would think I'm a part of the man's plan to disarm and and, and neuter the Black community is just very, very disheartening. And that's sad that that's where we are. But I wanted to talk about that because I think that this conversation is important. And I've and when I've started this podcast, not this particular episode, but building the village in general, one of the things that I said was I wanted this to be a platform for truth, but also a platform for good. And I definitely want to make sure that you know um, that I'm letting people know, like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna give you some information. Now we ain't gonna try to close the deal, but we're gonna put the facts out there. And so, brother, I appreciate yeah. you taking a moment to share your heart and the work that you do, and being that your wife is a pharmacist too, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah. so I remember coming to your house for the first time, and I was like, hold on, I said, both of them is not like I got to shift gears real quick. But one of the things that I learned coming and visiting uh, y- y'all their house was. I didn't realize both of you all were pharmacists because neither one of you required that anybody call you doctor. I had known yeah. you for at least two years before I ever knew you were a doctor. One. Yeah. And then two, for the folks that know me, when I do my introductions and when I speak to people, I never introduce myself as Dr. Jones. And people are always like, well, why is that? And you and your wife inspired that. Y'all definitely yeah. inspired that. Because for me, I always said I want to be approachable and I want to be able to give folks information kind of like yourself. And I'm like, if that's going to be the thing that's going to be a barrier, I'm mm-hmm. never going to do that. So I want you to know I'm telling the folks on air, like for the folks that are like, why don't you ever call yourself Dr. Jones? I'm like, I don't have to. Like, I know I got it. Yeah. I got, I'm looking right at it. Like, I know where it's exactly. at. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, and again, yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. If, it, if it's one less barrier that mm-hmm. prevents a stigma, prevents you from opening up or talking, I don't mm-hmm. need it as well. Dr. Right. EG3 came about because of my students, right? Because, yeah. you know, in this whole higher ed, ed world, you know, oh, they yeah. recognize and they they hold tight to it. They right? do. They could call, all call me Emmanuel for for all I care um, as long as we're still getting to the same end. So Dr. EG3 came by. I said, look, you got a choice. You can either call me Emmanuel. And like when he started calling me Dr. EG3, I was like, OK, that's your choice. You know, it's either Emmanuel or Dr. EG3. And it just kind of stuck. So. 
I appreciate that, man. Let's shift gears a little bit because somewhere along the lines, you started coaching people too. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like it's always been there. And having spent time with you and your wife and your beautiful family, man, I've been able to see firsthand. I'm like, this brother here, that's something different. But now I've noticed that you've taken this coaching thing and I see your posts on Instagram and stuff. I'm like, this joke out here is dropping some major gems. I mean, clearly you've been doing it professionally, but what made you decide to step out and like really take this coaching thing to heart? What brought that about? Well, what I'll tell you is this, man, is that I've distilled down that I really, really enjoy helping people to just live and be their most authentic self. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we live in a culture now where it's about the the false images of what success look like. I think it's about the perfection of social media. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, mean, I just want to rip all that back. But I think really what also started the journey was. Again, I recognized I was doing it as an executive, right? Mm -hmm. When I was helping people to just, you know, part of it was training about their jobs, but it was also like, okay, what are the things that are meaningful for you? Um, And I'll tell you, I think this is what also highlighted. I remember where when I first kind of got promoted to that level, I wanted to train everybody so Mm -hmm. they can be me one day, right? It probably was the worst 14 months of my life and was probably the worst 14 months of their life Mm -hmm. because I was trying to give people what I thought was for their benefit without ever asking them what was important to them. So what I realized was that I'm trying to give people all this information, knowledge and help them be me when really, bro, like he just wanted to get off on time. He just wants to be able to know how to train his staff and his employees. So my paradigm shift of being able to say, what does the person in front of me want and need and how can I help them get that? Mm-hmm. So again, several years, that was around job performance and them existing within this realm and this world of, you know, um, their career. Right. Yeah. Um, and again, I would felt like I was always a good friend or mentor. You know, I led small groups at, at my church and did my best, you know, to try to help mentor people in different arenas. But when I got to academia, I found that same dynamic was necessary. But what really tipped it off was that, Brandon, was I found sometimes our education system, we ask people to choose um, vocation before they ever identify a purpose. Mm. So what happens is you got, we were training our kids. What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? But we never asked the right question of who were you intended to be? Who were you, what were you created for? You know, and there's nothing wrong with pursuing a career. Cause look, we all know the, um, <laughs> the bills got to get paid, mm-hmm. but I find so many people, especially in higher education, you know, I, I get the privilege of being in uh, graduate studies. You know, um, so, you know, we're dealing with people who either have a bachelor's, have an associate's and they're in professional school mm-hmm. where they're kind of a little bit more set towards being like, oh, I want to be a, a MD. I want to be a, a PA or a physical therapist or pharmacist. But they still have the same questions like, hey, this is the dream that they've been taught, mm-hmm. you know, or thought they wanted since they were nine, seven, 10, 11 years old. But they're starting to think like, well, maybe this doesn't quite fit for who I'm becoming. Because as we know, in education, you're still developing, you know, but for men, for young men, prefrontal cortex is still developing until like 24 years old. But we're asking people to pick a career. We're basically asking people to pick a career choice at ninth grade when they haven't even become who they are as an individual yet. Man. Mm. So that's how the coaching kind of came about, because as I'm working with these young, these young people, it was like, look. It's okay to still pursue pharmacy, but you have something else that maybe you are geared for and you can do both. And what I re- well, then what I recognized was 
you know what? This ain't just early 20-somethings. There's been 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, and 50-year-olds that I've worked and talked with that they're still trying to uncover their dreams, you know, because they've been set on this path that, you know, they thought they were supposed to be on. Life got in the way. Responsibilities happened. And they think their dreams, their hearts, their pursuits, their goals no longer matter. And it's like, nah, come on, let's figure it out. We could do both. We could do both. So. Man, man, brother, you killing it. You killing it, man. You killing it. Brother, let me ask you this, because you, you, I'm going through my checklist of questions I have for you, man. You've nailed literally every question that I had for you. So wow. is there a question that you wish I would have asked that um, that you want answered or that you'd like to answer? Well, I was surprised you didn't ask much about my family. You know, uh, we, we didn't dive too much into that, you know, uh, so I was actually surprised. Um, you know, what I'll oh, say well, is please, this is, Well, please do, yeah. sure. Please go right okay. ahead, brother. Also, what I'll tell you is this is that, you know, obviously I give, you know, all props to my wife, you know, just because, you know, um, She's been on this journey with me, right? Mm -hmm. And what I'll say is this, is that, you know, not having a in-the-house male role model, like I mentioned earlier, I know I had some uncles around, you know, just learning to become a, a, a man yeah. um, has been a process, you know, and that's not to say I've been making all kinds of mistakes, because again, we're not trying to start no drama. There's been nothing around that. But, you know, this journey of just like becoming true, authentic self mm -hmm. is necessary to have support around you that allows you to explore that as well. I think sometimes when we get into relationships, you know, we're in a culture now where it's 50-50. It's yeah. about going Dutch. It's about, you know, yo, you pulling your share. It's about you. But it's like, nah, we have to be, um, you know, two imperfect people that come together behind a commitment that is like, I'm going to be with you and I'm committed to you and love you. And guess what? I might hate you every now and then, but it's for the long haul, you know? Yeah, and I think that that is something that is not talked about much today. You know, I think sometimes, you know, we see whether our examples of celebrities or people around us. And again, I just go back to myself, you know, not seeing what a successful family home life. And again, let me make sure I'm clear to the audience. My mom did an amazing job with yeah, a man. young uh, black boy in a in what was most of my childhood was the murder capital of the U.S. Uh, mm. to get me through that. So I, I know that I'm a statistical anomaly. All hats go off to her working two jobs and overtime. To, I look like this. I, I remember spending more time it, it, on my Nintendo, like the original Nintendo, you know, the one yeah, where you man. had to blow the cartridge. Yes, sir. People may not know about that. And I had the power pad where, you know, you would cheat and you would use your hands instead of your feet. But that's yeah. another show for another day. Um, I remember spending more time with that than I did like in this family unit. So mm. to just know that, you know, I am who I am in spite of that. I am who I am because whether it was people that were praying for me or people that were interceding on my behalf that I didn't even know about really? to this day. Um, I can just say that, you know, I give all credit to, to my wife, just allowing me to become a man. And, I, and I'll tell you all this, this, I think, you know, as a young man, I think what we really need is a purpose of responsibility. I think once a man accepts responsibility, his world will ultimately change. Ooh. And I want to make sure I want to, I want you, I, I said, accept responsibility, Come not on. have responsibility, not force responsibility, um, but accept it. I think that ultimately changed is who a man can become once he accepts those responsibilities, whatever they are. Man, and and, and brother, I appreciate you sharing that. And, and within that, fam, what's it been like being a father? 
Because I remember we, we met, neither, neither of us had kids when we first met. Yeah. Uh, all those yeah, yeah. That's been over almost over 10 years now. That's crazy. Yeah, 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 definitely, but, definitely. So neither of us had kids when we met. I wasn't even married yet, matter of fact, when yeah. I first met you. And yeah. so, brother, what's that been like, uh, being a father? Uh-huh. Um, I tell you this, man, God definitely has a sense of humor. Um, I, 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 my story earlier, remember, you know, mom and dad, you know, they, they weren't together, pretty mm-hmm. much grew up with a single mom household. My mom and dad, they split when I was like two years old. Unfortunately, um, I never met him after three. Uh, he passed away the year I graduated pharmacy school, but mm-hmm. just raised around all women. So I'm going to give you, let me give you some context before I talk about my family. So my mom, single mom, I have a sister. She's 15 years older than me though. Right. Okay. So there's like two moms in the household. You know, if you put that into, you know, if you think yeah. about that, like two moms oh, yeah. in the household, my grandmother stays across the street. So oh, yeah. I got women all around me. Um, yeah. My, um, my, my grandmother, my, my, excuse me, my mom had one brother, but he stayed, you know, in Baton Rouge, you know, not, not really close to us. You know, I had an aunt who, my uncle Taylor, uh, he, he uh, was in the area, but he was, you know, he had a, uh, he was a chief of police. So just a very, you know, busy guy. So anyway, I set that up to just say, God has a sense of humor. He gives me this wife. Hey, figure it out. I know you, you know, that's what you used to women, but he has me two daughters, Ooh, two daughters, girl, dad. right? So yeah, girl, dad, girl, dad, man. So, you know, uh, braiding hair, washing hair, detangling has been a thing. Um, but what I'll tell you is that, you know, it really, it really is comfortable uh, because again, it was like everything that I kind of experienced, mm-hmm. you know, don't take it personal. Um, always having to kind of disarm a little bit, you know, to make mm. sure that I, I'm I'm not an alpha male or nothing like that. I'm not overly aggressive, but it's always just taking account of, you know, making sure I'm being attentive um, and um, sensitive. Um, mm. It is a challenge for all the girl dads out there. Once I say this, you're going to know it's hard to date three women, man. I don't know how other people do it. You know, <sighs> it's, it's hard. You know what I mean? Where, you know, you got to attend to your wife. You got to mm-hmm. make sure that individually your daughters have time and being able to pass that around, you know, that attention around when you home and doing it, uh, you know, work all day, pouring out. But again, the, the key is always ensuring that I have something to give at home. Man, It's always that that is the thing that is what having young women um, in my life helped me to recognize is because I, I truly believe, Brandon, that I'm the example of what they're going to seek later on. Mm-hmm. And I have to always keep that front of mind. Always keep that front of mind. How I treat their mother, how I treat them. How do I come home? Like, you know, they don't think, my girls don't know nothing about, you know, let you walk in and put your your, your coat and stuff down. No. They, when, I, when I don't pick them up, like, so when I don't pick them up, it's, it's go time as soon as I show up. Mm-hmm. My wife is go going time. to get my kids Literally right now, just walked out the door. So when we wrap yeah. up here, they gonna zoom right through here, and I'm, yeah. I'm like, "Yep, I got." That's why I, re- I recorded at the time I did because I'm like, yeah. when they walk through that door, it's on. Like they don't Definitely. care how long. Even when I was working from home and they were here with me uh, yeah. last year because I kept them home from school for the better part of the year. Mm-hmm. They didn't care that I was in the middle of a meeting and I got senior administrators in here when it was go time. When when my daughter would look at her watch and when four o'clock had hit, hey, dude, I don't care who you talking to. Exactly. Come see me. Like, let's talk. Where my fruit stacks at, right? So, brother, I appreciate you sharing that, man. You have given us uh, so much wisdom today, man. And this has just been um, just incredible, man. Where can... Um, my listeners uh, find out more about you and what you do. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I'm across. I'm on all social media. Um, um, basically, handle uh, uh, Dr. E G three Farm D. So Dr. E G three Farm D. That's P H A R M D. Um, I got building my website, getting that going. It's uh, you can follow me at uh, www.emmanueljorge.com. One uh, M, one <laughs> G, right? So anyway, so yeah, www.emmanueljorge.com or all social media, Dr. E G three Farm D. Um, I'm across pretty much all platforms, primarily on Instagram and Facebook. So. Well, bless you, man. Listen, you stick around to the Building the Village Nation. Y'all take care of yourselves and each other, and we'll see you all next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Building the Village. To catch the next episode, be sure to follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. The show was hosted and produced by me, Dr. Brandon W. Jones, and edited by Lydia Fortuna. 